Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. And on tonight's show, we look at the rise and rise of ethical investing and ask, should you be wary of investing in mining companies generally and coal companies specifically? We debate this topic with Simon O'Connor of the Responsible Investment Association of Australia and our own Switzer Report companies commentator, James Dunn. Charlie Aitken and I will work out why the stock market has kept on rising despite a worrying spike in coronavirus infections, especially in the USA. I look at 10 reasons for why the stock market should sell off. Not sell off in an aggressive way, but sell off a bit at least because it has been rising and rising and rising. And then we talk to Louise Walsh. Now she's the CEO of the Future Generation Investment Company, which is an investment vehicle for those people who'd like to make money, but also see some of the profits go into charity. And then of course, Julia Lee of Boomin Investor starts off the program as usual, and she'll tell us why she's still positive on stocks and what she likes. So let's kick off and catch up with Julia right now. Well, joining me now, of course, is Julia Lee from Berman Invest. Julia, thanks for coming on the program. Great to be here, Pete. Julia, I've got to say, I wrote that piece last week saying there's 10 good reasons why this market should sell off a little bit and go down a little bit, <laughs> but it just keeps on rising. How come? I guess the biggest question for investors at the moment is if we're in the process of a bust cycle or whether the seeds of a boom cycle have been already planted. And I guess if you look back on the global financial crisis, when we did start to see that surge of stimulus come through and that support, that really sowed the seeds of the next uh, boom. I guess differently this time around, though, we haven't seen the usual cleanup that you get in a bust out that is inefficient companies being wiped out um, and uh, I guess um, I guess a bit more efficiency is coming through and that just means I think that the next bus will be a bit more painful because it will come from a higher level but for the time being we're in recovery mode it does seem strange because we are seeing COVID-19 cases rising throughout the globe still the economic impacts to be felt and I guess a bit of skepticism but the market is always forward-looking so the market looking forward at the moment and for the Aussie share market I think the big test is going to be this August reporting season. Yeah, exactly. Now, so what are you expecting, Julie? Because both the, the, the Yanks are going to reporting season, we're going to reporting <laughs> season. We know that stock prices should be a reflection of what companies' profits are going to look like down the track. What do you think is, is going to be the, the upshot of this reporting? Well, I guess in 2019, it's been predominantly COVID-19, which has impacted on existing trends and also created new trends as well. So look, what we know is that uh, one of the uh, headwinds at the moment is in the area of travel, and that will probably remain for a while. So, you know, expecting to hear negative things coming out of the travel space and the, uh, the I guess, the travel and leisure space. But on the flip side, working from home, we've seen trends being accelerated there as well. So the move to cloud um, has been one thing that's been accelerated and we have seen companies like NextDC that we own are benefiting from that and seeing large companies trying to accelerate that move to the cloud to allow their employer, 
employees to work from home. So, look, looking for those companies with that nice tailwind behind them, whether that's the next DC or something like West Farmers, which owns Officeworks and Bunnings, which has also been uh, benefiting, or some of those online retailers like Kogan and Temple and Webster, which have also been benefiting from people staying home. Mm. All right, Julia, let's take you through a couple of companies that people were asking us about in our webinar for the subscribers to the Switzer Report on Friday. And this is one when the, the uh, inquirer asked about, I instantly recall that you've always had a view on it, and that's Jumbo Interactive. <laughs> so, so what's going on there, and what's your current view on Jumbo Interactive? Sure. Jumbo Interactive, the main business is to resell, um, I guess, lotteries, uh, which are owned by Tabcorp. So they own the online portal or ozlotto.com.au. Um, and look, it's been a beautiful business. I guess the uncertainty with this business was whether um, Tabcorp would turn around one day and say, look, we want the online business all for ourselves. And then they wouldn't get the licensing to be able to sell some of those lottos online. But last week we heard that they've entered into a 10-year agreement which um, provides some stability to Jumbo Interactive. But on the flip side, um, the costs increase. So it's not as lucrative in the short term um, or the medium term for Jumbo Interactive. So I guess in this instance, what you're banking on is that that structural shift to online is really going to help offset some of those costs. And I do think that will happen. Um, but the conditions are, I guess, a bit worse from a financial and economic standpoint than they were previously. You might have noticed the Jumbo Interactive share price has been rocketing up since then. And it's not because of that announcement with Tabcorp. It's more around the jackpots that we've seen coming through. And the Powerball has jackpotted to $80 million. And when you see big jackpots like that, more people go out and buy tickets. So it's more profitable for Jumbo Interactive. So as long as those jackpots continue, expect Jumbo Interactive share price to also go up. Are you a buyer at these levels or you, would you uh, wait for a sell-off? Yeah, I would be strategic here and I'd wait till there were no jackpots. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess that would mean that Jumbo Interactive would be at a cheaper price because really you don't want to have a look at what's happening on Thursday, which is that $80 million Powerball. Yeah. But you want to take a more medium to long-term view with this one. Okay, Adelaide Brighton, it, it copped it last week. It used to be a pretty good company, but what's going on there? I think when it comes to building product companies, sometimes those products are simply interchangeable and that's quite um, difficult from a business and company point of view, especially when you're competing with cheaper imports and that's exactly what's happening with Adelaide Brighton in their lime business. They announced that Alcoa would not be uh, renewing their contract for lime from 2021. Um, so that will take effect next year. But Alcoa accounts for about 40% of lime volumes for Adelaide Brighton. Now, when you take away 40% of volumes from business, what happens is that usually costs go up because it's going to take a lot more to produce um, a smaller amount and you don't get the benefits of scale coming through. Not only that, this announcement points to competitive pressure coming through, which means with their existing contracts to be able to compete against those cheaper imports, they'll probably have to cut prices as well. So look, I think there's going to be more pain coming through for Adelaide Brighton, given that this new signals higher costs as well as more competitive pricing and I'd prefer something like a James Hardy where you there is a um, 
I guess, the difference in terms of the type of products it sells to market and sometimes it's not easily substituted for another product as something like lime or cement. Mm. Now, what about gold, Julia? We keep getting this question all the time. You know, is it too late to go long gold? Well, gold has been rising very nicely. I'm getting closer and closer to that 2,000 point level, which I think we will ultimately get to 2,000 US an ounce. So, look, it depends on whether you're looking at a short or medium or a long term time frame. I like to also go back and look at how gold has um, behaved in other uh, downturns. And I guess if we have a look at the global financial crisis in 2008, everything was sold off. But in 2009, we saw the gold subsector up by 20%. And in 2010, we saw the gold sub subsector up by 38%. So I think the money printing that we are seeing happening at the moment and the support should be good news for gold over the next 24 months. So I'm quite positive on gold over the next 24 months. I try and make sure that gold's no more than about 10% of my portfolio. And that's because gold stocks do tend to be quite volatile. Do you go the commodity or do you always go for your favoured um, companies? And if so, what are your favoured companies now? I have done both. I do like the uh, the feel of gold bullion. It's very heavy and shiny and beautiful, um, as well as gold nuggets. But in actual fact, in terms of returns, uh, gold companies do offer the, the most leverage uh, to uh, returns in terms of gold. So look, I'm sticking with the two that are in the MSCI index, which means that um, I guess there's broader coverage of these companies throughout the globe, not just here in Australia. And that's Evolution as well as Northern Star, which I still do hold in the fund. Yeah, Northern Star has been a fantastic company for those people who got into that com company a few years back. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of those uh, gold miners here in Australia have done very well, not only from, um, I guess, the gold production side of things, but being based in Australia means that their costs are in Aussie dollars. So if the Aussie dollar does fall, then they do see that extra benefit coming through. And the Aussie dollar price of gold has been phenomenal throughout the last few years. So look, US uh, gold is traded in US dollars. So if you do see weakness in the Aussie dollar, then those Australian gold miners receive that double whammy of a, a rising gold price as well as a lower Aussie dollar, which means a higher Aussie dollar gold price. Julia, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. That's Julia Lee from Berman Invest. I think ethical investing will be the new trend going forward. One day there will be ethical stocks or funds, I think as popular as the FANG stocks in the USA. But how long will that take? And is it financial folly to write off coal companies right now? In our little theme today, how will ethical investing impact the mining stocks of, the, of our world? I'm talking to James Dunn, uh, one of our financial reporters on the Switzer Report, and Simon O'Connor, who's the CEO of Responsible Investment Association of Australia. Simon, James, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's kick off with you first, of, uh, first of all, Simon. Uh, you know, clearly coal companies are not on your radar screen or, or the, the funds that are part of your organisation. But what do you think the, futures are, the future is for the typical coal company out there? Well, I think you're absolutely right. This growth in ethical and responsible investing means we've never seen such scrutiny of coal miners and other miners and others on issues around 
sustainability issues, climate change issues. And that's certainly putting the heat on these companies. But I don't think it's about you're either a miner or not a miner. It's actually what are you mining? How are you mining it? What is your market? You know, I think now we've got a very sophisticated approach from responsible and ethical investors to say, well, is it metallurgical coal? Is it thermal coal? And I think there's going to be very different trajectories for different miners. And the diversified mines are a case in point where we're seeing some of these large Australian diversified miners moving away from thermal coal, lessening their exposure there because they're seeing the writing on the walls and the, the long-term trajectory for thermal coal is a downward one. And that's not going to be immediate. It's not going to be overnight, but that's the direction we're, ha we're, we're heading. And so that's why you're seeing these pronouncements from our major super funds, major global fund managers talking to these issues and these trends. So Simon, are ethical funds basically ruling out lots of miners and particularly coal miners? You are increasingly seeing ethical funds flat out divest of coal miners and some large miners. That said, there are going to be others that are very large investors that will necessarily, particularly in the ASX exposure, retain holdings of large miners. Now we're seeing more frequently the uh, willingness to divest of just pure play thermal coal miners, but there's not a lot of that exposure on the ASX. But many of those responsible and ethical investors will hold the big diversified miners. And what that's translated into is much more detailed conversations between the investors and the mining companies mm -hmm. to try to set them on a pathway that is in line with these long-term emissions reductions goals, particularly the those that are set in train through the Paris Agreement and those 2050 net zero emissions targets. So you are seeing both a movement away from mining stocks, but also much more pressure on the boards and the execs of these mining companies by the investors themselves to pressure them to start shifting, transitioning their business to really start focusing on that long-term lower emissions future. Mm -hmm. Now, James, last week in the Switzer report, you, you, you looked at um, some coal companies that, and you, you, know, you, you sell and write a piece which says, don't invest in these companies. Um, I, I, maybe you have at, at various stages, but certainly it's usually you look for companies that have uh, upside, have a bit of value. What, what did you discover when you went looking for, for coal mining companies that might be worthwhile investing in? Well, there's two things, and Simon put his uh, finger on one of them, and that is that um, metallurgical coal in particular is not going away anytime soon because you need it to make steel. There, There's no global scale substitute for using coke and coal in steel. There are electric arc furnaces and um, uh, other technologies that, that, that are at the margins and some people are going to invest in those and put a lot of money into them, et cetera, et cetera. But, but to see them take over um, all aspects or, or all the quantum of global steel making is, is not easy to envisage. So metallurgical coal is going to be, be here for a while. And, and I also think thermal isn't going away as quickly as a lot of people wish. And, and, and that's, that's the key to it, Peter. As I said in my article, you, you, can, you can wish it away, but the, the thermal coal um, miners in Australia have large Asian markets that are going to be voracious consumers of coal for, for some decades. And look, I think that there, there, there's even um, a failure of the, of the minerals industry to go on the front foot a bit. But Paul Flynn from Whitehaven does occasionally. And and take people on and say, look, there's hundreds of millions of people um, in our market regions that don't have electricity at all. And 
we're going to give it to them with our thermal coal and in places like India. And if they didn't buy it from there, they'd probably buy lesser quality air, uh, coal from places like Indonesia and, and burn it and, and create more emissions. They don't make that case enough. Um, I think they're scared to. And you can argue because, look, social licence to operate is a highly subjective phrase. And I think that's why the ASX didn't put it into the... Um, the, the the rules of company disclosure they, they they covered that with with other terms that that are more onerous etc but but social license to operate is a highly it's like beauty it's it's in the eyes of the beholder and highly subjective and i didn't think you could really put such a subjective um phrase into black and white law of stock exchange listing rules but to come back to what i was saying there is a case for the coal companies and they're just not willing to prosecute it. But James, let's assume that you're right, and I think you are, that lots of Asian customers will be demanding uh, thermal coal for quite some time. The, the fact is our share prices are determined by big funds and we're seeing a lot of funds, I think uh, BlackRock and some of the big super funds, as Simon was alluding to, they're really uh, divesting themselves of it. So even though the companies might be able to sell the stuff and make a profit, the likelihood that the share prices could give great returns as opposed to okay returns seems, seems like a more likely scenario. Okay returns, best case but not great returns. What would you say to that? Well, look, I, I think that that might be right in the sense that um, the, the, the passively constructed portfolios are not going to hold them if, um, if ESG and SRI considerations become the main drivers of those passively held portfolios. But, I mean, there may always be a case for uh, active investors. And, and look, ultimately, if they run out of market, if they run out of consumers, um, the, uh, customers, they won't be in business much longer. I, I'm not sure that the the leaving from, from the share register of, uh, of ESG mandated funds, uh, I, I don't think that leaves them totally devoid of people willing to own their shares. Mm. It, it's a big... Uh, driver of investment and getting bigger and and you know, overall rightly so but there's got to be a case for um, people investing in those companies driven by the, the attributes I described before yeah Simon what, what do you think is going to happen over time for these sorts of coal companies and they're the ones that get the, the, the most I guess negative press because they have a, a clearer implication on the environment what, what do you think the future is for coal companies? Yeah, look, I think it's trickier and trickier for a pure play thermal coal miner in today's market <clears throat> because as you've identified, this is a global phenomenon. We're seeing some of the world's biggest asset owners and asset managers stating a commitment to aligning their portfolio with a net zero emissions by 2050. And that effectively means they will be decarbonising their portfolio over that period. The easiest way to do that is to dump the thermal coal miner. And so we're starting to see that um, come through. I think where um, this becomes much more challenging is in those big diversified miners. And that's where you're going to see a lot of work to see these miners actually start reconfiguring the, the, the parts of their portfolio of the minerals and the metals that they're digging out and they're processing. And you're seeing that taking 
place already. I think um, beyond this, though, you know, this is a, a partly a climate change conversation. Partly, it's an identification that companies that are exposed to much greater risks, and this is not just a climate change risk. This is health and safety risks. This is how they manage their communities and stakeholders, how they manage the indigenous heritage sites on their mine sites. These are companies that pose really big risks in the portfolio if they're not managing these issues proactively. And so I think we're seeing the investment community more forcefully putting pressure on these companies to manage the full suite of these issues. And that's just become a major part of the Australian market and global capital markets now. So in Australia, for example, we have nearly half of all professionally managed funds now committed to looking at these kinds of issues. And so it's really changing the conversation at a board level, at a director level. And I think what you'll see is, you know, in Australia, we know the super funds really are the owners of much of that capital. They are being responsive um, to their members. And what we're hearing from Australians increasingly is that they just simply don't want that pure exposure to the dirtiest of fossil fuels anymore. And so there's pressure coming from both the investment sort of nature of these companies, how good an investment they make, but also from members of super funds and Australians themselves who are increasingly right into their super funds, putting pressure on their funds. So we just don't want that exposure anymore. So, um, you know, couple that with the APRA, with APRA our financial uh, regulator saying you need to now be, you know, monitoring and doing scenario tests on your climate change risks and disclosing your climate change exposures. There's uh, layers and layers of pressure on these funds that is feeding down the chain to these companies. And I think that's going to play out negatively, but particularly these pure play exposed thermal coal miners. Mm. James, look, look at BHP and Rio. Rio got into trouble after it uh, blew up a, a cave that had indigenous um, you know, um, memorabilia or his, um, traditional um, artifacts. Um, BHP has also been associated with some kind of outrageous behaviour affecting indigenous Australians. Um, clearly both those companies are not only export earners and contributors to the tax base, they're also, um, at the moment, they're, they're good income payers for retirees. Do you think that both these companies are managing this threat of the, you know, the new age of investing effectively? Well, I don't think any of those companies um, operating in Australia could be called cowboys by any stretch of the imagination, Peter. They put an enormous amount of effort into this. So environmentally, culturally, uh, indigenous relations, et cetera, et cetera. And it wouldn't have escaped your notice that Rio Tinto under Jean-Sebastien Jacques have been tried to be the wokest of all the mining companies uh, of late. So for them to be caught out um, blowing up an Aboriginal heritage site was was quite surprising. And I think there's there's a story behind it of um, massive amounts of consultation that um, doesn't always uh, end up with the well the the agreements um, are struck, but one party might view them differently to the other party. Uh, the WA government's made this point that there's there's still they're surprised at it, but there was still confusion over some of the agreements struck with the uh, Indigenous land ownership groups uh, and the mining companies about what was going to happen. And I think, again, we've got to just do that more and more thoroughly. And the mining companies do. You've got, you, you, you didn't mention Fortescue, but they're also um, proposing to uh, do some blasting and, uh, over areas that um, some groups don't want to have blasted. And, 
I, th I don't think it's a black and white case of, um, I'm sorry, that's an, uh, an unfortunate pun, but- uh, That's right. I, we can live with it, James. I know it in, wasn't I, intended. I don't think it's a case of, um, some people still view it this way, of rapacious um, robber baron mining company riding roughshod over local owners. I think in these cases, the, the companies involved um, believed they had agreements that uh, foreshadowed the the work that they did in those areas and, and, and that the counterparties to their agreement changed their minds afterwards. It's, it's, a, it's an area of, of very grey perceptions and, and we've just got to get better at it. But it it's, would be wrong to say that we just let companies do what they want in those areas. They don't. They put enormous amounts of effort into it. Clearly, they've um, had some issues lately and I would hope how and why that happens gets completely and fully explained. Simon, let me put uh, this question to you in a personal way. Uh, a son or daughter or a beloved relative comes to you and says, I'm thinking about investing in BHP and Rio. They seem like good companies. They've done really well, um, uh, in particularly in terms of their returns. And you say, I'm, I'm, and I want to invest for the, the, the next 10 years. What would you say to them? Start by saying it's best to find a super funder, a fund manager who's well aligned to your own values and investment expectations, and 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 go with them. Um, but but you know what's really important, I think, is that any investor today is really expected to be assessing and analysing and understanding these risks and knowing how well these companies are managing sustainability issues, indigenous rights issues, climate change issues. So most investors are doing that. Um, you're going to have multiple different approaches to that, though, and some are going to say, yeah, look, I want to be a stockholder in BHP and Rio because I actually want to be able to influence the shape and the nature of that company because I think they are going to be around for a long time. They will continue to produce the important metals and minerals that are really critical to a, a net zero emission economy by 2050. You know, we need those players there and, and you know, not dissimilar to, to James, you know, I think it's really important we have credible big companies who we can sit down and have conversations around these issues with and try to prevent these failings. I think this was a massive internal failing from Rio, the one we talked about before. Um, but it's not as simple as just divest or invest. I think you can be investing and be a really responsible shareholder and owner of these companies. And I think that's the more momentous shift we're seeing in the investment community today. It's not just about, I'm going to exclude these stocks. It's a that I'm going to be an investor in you for a very long time. And so I want to ensure you're managing the issues that are going to ensure your success for a very long time. And that's why these issues of social license, of safety, of climate change, of indigenous issues are right on the radar for these long-term responsible and ethical investors. And so that's not going away anytime soon. So if you want to be a company that's going to be producing good returns long into the future, your board and your executives need to be getting right on top of these risks. Because right now they've moved from a a nice to have from some cottage industry on the sidelines to really mainstream considerations and compliance considerations uh, from the biggest investors in Australia and globally. James, same question to you. You've got uh, you know, young young duns in your life and they ask you, uh, Dad, you know, should I invest in companies like BHP and Rio? Will they keep being great deliverers of capital gain and even dividends nowadays? Yes, I think they will. And I, I would probably say, um, really look at those companies with um, very closely with an eye to investment because, and this is where I come back to that point again, the mining company or, company or industry has got to get on the front foot better. And if, 
if if people do think there's going to be a, a totally renewable energy driven world, then the amount the amounts needed of minerals commodities are, are, are just mind boggling. And and of course, who who where do we get them from? The, we get them from the miners and and the, not just not just the the coppers and nickels of the world, uh, Peter, but but. The, the cobalts and, and, and the rare earths, et cetera. And it's a massive opportunity for Australian miners and, and they're going to be key players in this. And I don't understand why they don't sing their, sing their um, own praises on that front a bit, a bit louder mm. and say, look, if, if you're a renewable energy advocate, you're going to need a lot of cobalt. cobalt and do you want that mined um, by an Australian company under all of Australia's... Uh, laws and oversight, or do you want it mined by 12-year-old kids in the Congo? Mm. And there's so many opportunities for them to tell a better story about what they do. Yeah, absolutely good point. Simon O'Connor from the Responsible Investment Association of Australia, thanks for joining us, and James Dunn from the Switch Report. Once again, thanks for your contribution. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Simon. Well, the stock market keeps rising, despite the fact that I thought last week there was at least 10 reasons why this market should sell off. Not that I'm saying there should be a huge second leg down or anything like that, but with infections rising, I thought there'd be an opportunity for some profit takers to think, oh, it's about time, there's a sell off. Charlie Aiken from Aiken Investment Management is here. What do you reckon, Charlie? Have you been expecting a bit of a pullback? Well, it's been an almighty recovery, hasn't it, Pete? And it's starting to do the classic climb the wall of worry, ignore everything moment, which is a tiny bit concerning. There's no doubt about that, mm. right? So I too share your short-term concerns that increasing virus rates, the market ignoring, was somewhat, somewhat perplexing, yeah. including in Australia, which it's broadly ignored again today. Yeah. Aussie dollars up and markets hanging in well. Mm. But look, yeah, look, I mean, the market is due a pullback, but we could have said that, you know, a week ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, a month ago, and it hasn't yeah. really happened. No. And I'll go say, it seems more likely that America needs a pullback more than we do, because we haven't got as close to our pre-crash high as the Americans sure. have. Uh, and, I, and I figured that once America sold off with a little bit of fear and anxiety, we would follow suit. Do you think so? Potentially, yeah. yeah. But I mean, look, the American stuff has been where the biggest momentum of bad news has been. Yes. You know, in the southern states, those cases mm. have really picked up quite dramatically. Mm. And there's some reclosures of things, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's a really a bit of a stick in the ointment. Mm. And also the political, uh, the political uh, circus in America is heating up as well, which you would have thought might have just capped yeah. US equities a bit. But look, if US equities fall where we fall, absolutely, right? But it, I would have to say, though, the resilience is astounding at the astounding. moment. Astounding. <laughs> Nice word. Now, let's just go through the 10 reasons and, and let's just rate them as you know, how serious they might be for a, a pullback. Of some so first of all, the infections. The infections, to me, seem quite unbelievably high at the moment in America. Death rates haven't picked up, but that could be a lag. What do you think on, on the infection front? Yeah, well, it's obviously an issue. I think once we start to see hospital overcrowding, that's, a, that's an issue. But the, uh, probably the one thing You've got to remember, Pete, that New York is the one place that's getting better. Mm. And New York's the investment capital and the capital markets capital. Yeah. And it's obviously getting better. So I just wonder if there's a sort of New York effect in this where they sort of, the, the capital markets are ignoring the southern states a bit because they don't control the money, but they've mm. obviously got big influence in economics. So, okay. yes, I think it's an issue. Number two, this is, I don't know if you know this, it's the best 12 week sprint in market history for US stocks. 
has to be, but it was probably the preview was the biggest 12-week fall in, in history. Yep. You know, that was a very quick 38% we lost. So, as they say, Peter, the harder you drop it, the faster, the harder it bounces. So, I'm not surprised by that. That, that I don't see that as a reason for it to all fall apart. Yeah, but remember, I'm just saying a pullback. I'm not saying yeah. that, that why they went up was based on... Yes, it's been false. very quick. Yeah. The recovery okay. has been very quick. Fang. It's unbelievable. The FANG group of stocks, you've invested a lot, a lot of your, your um, fund in some of those FANG stocks. And I always thought they're due for a pullback. What do you think about that? Potentially, but they also potentially the least affected group of stocks in the market mm. in terms of the businesses they do, their lack of cyclicality, mm. and things like Microsoft are just, you know, they're actually benefiting from this, this closure of economies, remote working, yeah. the cloud infrastructure everyone using rather than their own service. Yeah, Zoom so, and Skype and all but that But I will stuff. say, we recently, as I said to you, sold out of Facebook. We thought it got fully valued and has regulatory, regulatory issues and yeah. also you know, a bit of client feedback too. But look, no, I don't think they're grossly overpriced, but things like Tesla, I think, you know, at $1,200, the biggest car manufacturer in the world, that's wildly overvalued. There's, there's ill, and I would say in some of the fintech areas. So the answer is yes or no. I don't think it's as obvious as Alphabet or Microsoft, yep. but I think, yes, there's elements of extreme valuation in some okay. of those sectors. The median S&P 500 stocks trades on a forward PE of 20 times, which is historically high. What do you say to that, John? Ten-year bond yield, 65 basis points. Not a concern. Okay. I'd right. be more worried about a bond. That's right. And, and now I totally agree. Um, if interest rates are low, therefore the, the PE, PE can, be can be higher. Right. Warren Buffett hasn't been a buyer until this week. He bought into, ironically, uh, a gas company. Correct. Yeah. A liquefied natural gas and distribution company. It's the first time he's bought, and, but when I wrote this, he hadn't bought a thing. He was holding $127 billion cash. Billion. He's down to $127 billion tonight. Mm -hmm. well, he's only really spending $4 billion cash because yeah. he's assuming the debt of this company, Dominion yeah. or whatever it is. Look, I don't think that's you know, a, a major bear point at all, is right. that Buffett hasn't really spent something till last night. Remember, he's the biggest shareholder in Apple, which has gone from 200 to 360. Mm. It's about 25% of his own market cap is Apple shares, and he hasn't sold any of those yeah. if he's worried about the world. I'd think that, I'd think, no, I don't put that down as a concern. Okay. Well, I, I do love this quote from Warren Buffett from many years ago. A pin lies in wait for every bubble. Yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> correct. But we, we, the funny thing is, as we also say, as John Maynard Keynes, markets can remain irrational for longer than you can remain solvent. Exactly. And shorting has killed people, Peter, in the last month or two. Shorts in Tesla and you know Afterpay in Australia have been absolutely decimated. So yes, you could be right on the pin coming, but you want to know the timing of when the pin comes. Okay. Uh, this argument that particularly in America, because of Robin Hood, all these millennials have piled into the stock market excessively, not judiciously, but excessively, and these could, these people could be quickly uh, could quickly turn tail and get out of the market. I would say that's probably the biggest concern, is who is buying these stocks? Yeah. Who's buying Tesla up 10% every night? Mm -hmm. In Australia, who's buying Afterpay every day? I mean, who are these people that think something's <laughs> worth 10% more ne the next day yeah. on no news? Yeah. I would say that market structure bit, with free, there's free brokerage at Robinhood, you can trade for free, mm. you probably, you know, you can do whatever you like, and there's a lot of day trading, and there's a lot of narrative. A lot of these uh, stories are being spread on Twitter, yeah. and people just buying whatever the story of the day is. I would say that is the most concerning part of the US equity market right now. So I'd put a big yes to that. Yeah, and from my point of view, I'm trying to create the argument that there's a bit too much froth in the but market. But that's quite stock specific, the Robin Hood stuff. I mean, mm. they were buying Hertz when it was bankrupt. They've been, it's, it's, quite, it's, uh, it's, it's quite bizarre, yeah. but there's some real poster children there. One of them is Tesla. Okay. The charts, if you look at the charts, I don't know whether you actually look at the charts. I must admit, I, I, I don't, I'm not an expert on charts, 
But if I'm feeling negative, I'll go to a charts guy and say, well, what are the charts telling you? And, and what they were basically yeah. saying was, it's going sideways with a slight inclination to dip, but not anything excessive. Charlie, what's your view on charts? Oh, I don't really have a strong view. I think they tell me what has happened yeah. rather than what is about to happen. Mm. And we can backsolve anything from a chart. We can come up with our own narrative from a chart. So the only thing I would say to that is that we look sometimes at relative strength indicators in the mm. short term, mm. whether a stock is overbought. And there are many indicators of excess, excessive enthusiasm on a very short term technical level on many well-known household stocks in America. Okay. So yes-ish on that. Okay, um, uh, City put out a survey of fund managers and when they, when they were asked if they thought the market would drop 20% or would rally 20%, and this was only a week ago, 70% of managers chose a 20% decline. Charlie? That's actually bullish, mm. as we know, because it means people are positioned for it. It means that we're all running a bunch of cash, we all think it's overvalued, we all think the rebound's too hard, mm. we all think that the COVID numbers are going up and the market's defying it, we all think the reporting season coming up in America and Australia is going to be pretty pretty bad because mm. it's got the quarter, it's, yeah. that's the quarter. That's a bad quarter. And is the market brave enough to see through that quarter when it actually gets the numbers? Mm. So all the professional fund managers are sitting there trying to be sensible and go, this is all a little bit ahead of itself, but they're all well positioned for it. You know, you look at the so cash levels, the highest... They, they, so they want to be buyers when the yeah, market correct. comes up. So it's wishful thinking on their part? No, it may, be, it may not be, Pete. Mm -hmm. the, the, fact that the fact of earnings, because the market is a weighing machine, yeah. might actually be the, might be the little bit of the pin. Earnings season is starting correct. now. Yeah. Starting in America, like mm. we had one in Nike the other day, was a little bit worse than expected. Shares fell 7% in the night. Mm. You know, that had a very good rally and then fell, then recovered a bit. But I, that would be my bigger concern of all these list of things. Mm is that the American earnings season, the Australian earnings season in August are, you know, a little bit of a reality check, Pete, because this has been a horrible, horrible period. Okay. Number 10, beware profit takers. So many people out there have made really good profit. There may well be a time where a lot just say, I'm just going to take this profit off the book and then be the buyer at, at the bottom. Potentially. That, I mean, that to me is, again, market structure, a lot of this day trading and Robin Hood type yeah. behaviour. Mm. All these people are sitting on big profits and cheering. Have you taken profit? We do, we do it only on valuation. We yeah. think, we, you know, we're long-term investors. If mm. I don't think a company's... We will, as I said, we took Facebook out of the portfolio. We thought it was overextended yeah. versus our valuation. We sold it. Mm. But we'll only do it in that situation. I'm not going to try and trade something for 5%. And what did you buy? Nothing at the moment. We've got a little bit of Berkshire Hathaway, actually. Yeah. We've bought a little bit more of Warren Buffett's stuff. Yeah. But we're, we're sensibly trying to be sensible now, just waiting to see how these companies went. We've got a little bit of cash. Mm. But the trick of the last few months is to be invested, Pete. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you'd sat here and worried about everything, you'd miss the entire rebound. Well, the, the bonus, that I've given you 10. The bonus one, which I left out initially, was Donald Trump and a US election. Uh, and remembering that the second half of a year is generally the worst for the stock market in the US, isn't it? Like going from about November through yep. to about April, yep. best time yep. historically, and this is the weaker time. Look, I mean, the US election is a complete curveball. I mean, mm. I, I don't think anyone can predict what's going to happen there. No. You know, it's, I don't think you can really believe any poll. I don't think there's any clarity in that at all. Mm. And I don't think we've got much clarity on the, you know, the different sides and their different policies either. The moment the market, which is very short-sighted at the moment, is just not even worried about that, even though Trump's approvals ratings, if you want to believe them, are falling reasonably sharply. Look, I think the biggest risk outside of market positioning of a few day traders and people getting a little bit enthusiastic is some sort of mistaken escalation militarily between the US and China, like in the South China Sea. Like, there's some accident or someone mistakenly shoots down a plane. That's when you do get markets down 10% in the night. Mm. I don't want to sound completely hairbrainish, but the, that is 
a chance that yeah. something mistakenly military happens. Now, that would be a very uh, probably the so biggest. So how much thing. cash are you holding? No, I've got ten percent at the moment. You know, we're small. Yeah, but we're also because we naturally own foreign stocks. We've got we're short the Australian dollar because that's mm. how we naturally are. So that's your hedge. But no, look, most of the things we own, we think are not immune, but relatively immune to mm. what what is going on. Obviously, the developments in Australia with reshutting down borders and things, you know, remind you that you're still not out of this, mm. and that and it's not necessary time to go and have a big punt on all cyclical recovery stocks. Mm. But look, I think broadly, Pete, that equities look better than anything. Mm. I think cash is going to return confidently can return zero for the next few years. I think bonds are risk-free reward. I think that you know, anyone who buys a 10-year government bond when, bond, when governments are issuing so much debt at, say, 65 basis points, I, I, I cannot see why you do that, because no. the risk of inflation wiping you out and capital losses. And I think equities look good as, a, as, as the asset class of choice. Mm. So I'm not bearish on equities, but I fully agree with you. There are, there are, there are points of extension in the markets right mm. now, and it may actually be healthy, as much as I hate saying that, to see a bit of a pullback. Yeah. That's exactly what my, my view is, Charlie, that there are, are at least 12 reasons now for this market to sell off. It's done very, very well. I wouldn't be surprised to see a pullback, but I've got to say, like you, Charlie, I'd be a buyer if the market pulled back quite substantially. So I think we are heading in the right direction. I've liked the fact that the IMF thinks we're, Australia's going to bounce back over 4%. Deloitte came out today and said the same thing. So economically, as long as the infection and the death rate around coronavirus doesn't get out of hand again, well, then I think the market can go higher, but I think there will be a pullback somewhere along the line. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Brad. Well, I'm joined by Louise Walsh, who's the CEO of the Future Generation Fund. Louise, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Peter. Happy to be here. So tell us about the Future Generation Fund for those who've never heard of it before. So the future generation companies are two listed investment companies that were established by Jeff Wilson from Wilson Asset Management. And there are two of them. One is for investors that are interested in Australian equities. And the second one is for investors that are interested in global equities. Um, they were set up, FGX was listed on the ASX in 2014. And 12 months later, based on the success of the first one, a lot of investors said, look, we're quite underweight in global equities. Would you think about doing a sister company, an FGG? Uh, the global one was listed in September 2015. And what we've done here, Peter, is it's a bit unusual. There's a dual purpose. We're delivering investment returns and social returns. So it's really an example of impact investing. And what we've done is we've chosen the very best boutique fund managers, Australian fund managers for FGX and global fund managers for FGG. And we've asked each of those chosen managers to manage mon money for us pro bono. So without charging any fees. So no performance fees and no management fees. And the reason they've agreed to do it is because each of the companies each year donates 1% of its net tangible assets to charity. In terms of, let's just understand this then from the point of view of an investor. So you said there's now two listed vehicles on the stock market, right? Yes, correct. All right. Yes. And uh, the ticker code for the the locally based equities is FGX. Right. And if someone wanted to go foreign, it is FGG. Okay. So we have some investors that are interested in investing in both, yep. whereas one might be particularly interested in one rather than the other. Okay. So let's just. Uh, 
understand then, from the point of view of an investor, um, the, the actual returns that they receive uh, are just like any other fund. But Absolutely. But, but Absolutely. Some Peter. of the return could, have, could be slightly affected by the fact that some money's donated or, or, or the donations are after the results effectively. Well, Peter, just to explain it very, very simply, from mm. an investor point of view, the investor's getting access to, as I said earlier, the best boutique managers that we can find. And yep. we're talking about the Magellans of the world, the VGIs, the Regals, the Wilson Asset Management, mm. Coopers, Paradise, etc. Mm. From an investor point of view, you're not relying on one single manager to deliver those returns. I mean, we've we've tried to come up with a mix of different managers. And also a lot of these funds, um, they're closed to retail investors. And retail investors are really the, the, the main swag of investors that invest here. But if you're an investor, you're not paying a performance fee. And if we take, say, FGG, that average performance fee would probably be something like about 13, 14%. And rather than paying what typically is a 1% management fee if you invest with one of these fund managers, we're donating that to charity. So in very simple terms, that's really, there's no performance fee. And instead of paying a 1% management fee, we donate that to charity. Okay, now are these listed investment companies or something else? No, they're absolutely listed investment companies. Um, Jeff Wilson, uh, the founder, as you know, you know, he's quite a doyen and a big fan of listed investment companies. He happened to be in London about uh, eight years ago. He was sitting in a hotel reading the Financial Times and he read about an investment vehicle in London which inspired him to set up these two vehicles. And a hedge fund manager in London, Tom Henderson, had uh, approached about a dozen boutique hedge fund managers in London, asked them to manage money pro bono in their main funds. So it's not like in the same with what we're doing. It's not like the fund managers are setting up a separate fund just to manage our money. Like with Magellan, it's the Magellan Global Fund. And we're probably one of one if only few, uh, you know, investors there that are not paying, um, you know, a fee. But Jeff, um, in, in the UK, the, the reason the managers agreed to manage the money pro bono was because 1% of the net assets of that investment vehicle was being donated to charity. And Jeff thought, wow, what an incredible model. Um, and he thought, he went to see that hedge fund manager in London, this was about eight years ago, interrogated him, worked out how he was doing it and said to himself on the plane on the way back uh, to Sydney, that's something that I would like to do in Australia. And I think because he's got a very strong network um, within the funds management industry, it made it a whole lot easier when he thought about doing it. And obviously when it comes down to the ask, of getting the managers to agree to do it. So what have the, the performance been of the funds? Yeah, so just in summary, in all time periods, so we're talking about whether we're talking about one month, six months, one year, three year, five years since inception, um, they've all outperformed. The, the one thing we would stress is that these two um, vehicles are very much designed to provide downside protection in down months. So just as an example, in the last six months, I mean, obviously, we've had incredible volatility, as you can appreciate, and uncertainty there with markets. Um, FGG, the global one, has outperformed 5.4%, and FGX has outperformed 5.1%. 
The other thing we're trying to do is ensure low volatility, particularly when we're comparing ourselves to the two benchmarks that we do, the All Ords uh, for, the, for, the, for FGX and the MISCI World Index for FGG. So, you know, they are, they're not designed to shoot the lights out. I mean, they're not designed to be, you know, high conviction funds, but the average shareholder is a self-managed super fund. We have about 15,000 shareholders. Um, the average shareholder would probably own 20 or 30,000 shares in one or both of the companies. 30% of the shareholders are ultra high net worth families, family offices, philanthropic foundations. Also large charities have actually invested as well, which is interesting. And then 20% are mum and dad investors. People like my mum, who's 86, I mean, she's bought them for her grandkids. She wants to teach them about investing and capitalism and getting a dividend and how all that works. But she also likes the fact that 1% is donated to charity. And what we do every August is give every shareholder the opportunity, if they like, to vote on where that donation allocation goes. So she loves sitting down with the grandkids and teaching them a little bit about the non-profit sector and, and giving back. There's no tax deduction for the investor. It's purely um, an investment opportunity. The tax deduction actually rests with the two companies. Yeah, I guess in many ways, it's like going along for a nice ride. Absolutely, absolutely. But what we would stress is that the investment return is not compromised by the social return. Hmm. I mean, first and foremost, we're here to deliver on the investment returns. And we have 13 fund managers in the global one. At the moment, we have 20 fund managers in the Australian one. And we have investment committees for each company that spend all their time reviewing the performance short and long term. And there are times where we will remove a manager. And that's really if, for two main reasons, key personnel leaves. A great example would be when Peter Hall left Hunter Hall uh, quickly and swiftly we removed them straight away from FGG because we weren't convinced that, that that would be the same without him. But the main reason we will remove a manager is if there's consistent underperformance. And, and that would be, you know, if, if a manager can have a bad six or nine mm. months, we see that. But, you know, if it's an extended period over a very long period of time, we will remove them. And we've removed, just so you know, I think we've removed 11 fund managers hmm. from each of the two, uh, sorry, combined across the two companies over what we're coming up to six years. And I think we've added uh, the same number, hmm. interestingly enough. So finally, uh, Louise, uh, what kinds of charities have been regular recipients of the benefits of these funds? Thanks, Peter. Well, look, we've chosen two cause areas. For FGX, we've chosen children and youth at risk. That's where we want to make a difference over a long period of time. And with FGG, the chosen cause area is youth mental health. And that's where we really believe we can make a serious difference over time. Just, to, just so you know, to date, uh, we've donated $30.6 million in just five years across the two companies. And in last year alone, it was $9.5 million. Now, this year we're on track. I think it will end up being uh, just over, you know, 10.5 million. But the area of youth mental health is a particular sweet spot for us. It's chronically underfunded. You know as well as I do how important and how crucial that, that cause area is. I mean, we're just in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, there's spiking in mental health issues for everyday Australians, whether you're young, old or in between. And what we're trying to do is encourage more funding in that cause area. But some of the charities are well-known charities, like um, 
you know, Black Dog, for instance, um, Sane Australia, Reach Out Australia, but they're not all well-known names. They're ones that we've handpicked that we really believe can deliver. Louise, great story. Thanks for joining us on the program. Very, thank you very much, Peter. A pleasure. Uh, one last thing, if a, if a person wants to look up about this, what's the best website? Oh, absolutely. Uh, futuregeninvest.com.au and you can buy on market, there's no minimum. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. Cheers.